0: Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, historian David Dixon discusses his book, The First Irish Cities, An 18th Century Transformation. The moderator is Anne-Marie McInerney, a librarian with Dublin City Library and Archive. The episode was recorded via Zoom on the 30th of September 2021. So our speaker today is Professor David Dixon. David is Professor Emeritus of Modern History in Trinity College Dublin. His previous books include Dublin the Making of a Capital City published 2014, One. Old World Colony, Cork and South Munster, 1630 to 1830, published 2005, and New Foundations Ireland, 1660 to 1800, published 1997. So, David's talk today is based on his recent publication called The First Irish Cities, an 18th century transformation, published by Yale University Press this year. And so, without further ado, let me hand you over to today's speaker, David Dixon.
1: Thank you very much, Anne Marie. Thanks very much to the team. And thank you, wherever you may be. joining us today and it's a great pleasure to be able to really uh, talk a little bit about one of the things that fascinates me, the sort of comparison between Ireland's uh, cities. Now it's probably fair to say that most Dubliners today are are not too concerned about what's going on in Cork City or on the banks of, they might say, their own lovely Lee. The fact that two of our Taoiseach over the last 50 years have been Cork city men, hasn't really changed this, nor have the the huge number of national celebrities on radio and theatre and TV who are quintessentially of Cork City uh, uh, or its immediate surrounds. I'm thinking of Roy Keane, Eamon Morrissey, uh, Neil Thabin, back to those bare-bone philosophers, Cha and Mia, who appeared on Frank Hall's Pictorial Weekly many years ago. Yet Cork City still remains I think, strangely indistinct to many Dubliners. Now reverse the proposition, and of course Dublin is all too familiar uh, to Cork people, too dominant, too much the overblown capital, the centre of conspicuous consumption. Now 21st century Dublin has a population, which we can calculate conservatively, at one and a quarter million, constituting about a quarter of the population of this state. With Cork City and suburbs, despite a long history of decentralization initiatives have a population of about 210,000. And if one were to include their respective commuting hinterlands, that disparity between Dublin and Cork would be even more acute. Yet there is in Cork a well-grounded pride that local industrial success, from indigenous food companies to multinational pharmaceuticals and IT giants, has made Cork a center of international significance, allowing forecasters to predict that it will be the fastest growing Irish city uh, over the next 20 years. Now, my task is not to debate the merits of all this uh, Dublin's insouciance, Cork's abundant self-belief, but rather to explore the beginnings of that relationship, that comparison, and really to go back a long way to to the 1700s, a time when each city was transformed in size and function, And when their relative sizes uh, were also very different from what we know today, Uh, Cork was relatively bigger. It was a time when the eyes of some Dublin, the Cork, the court city, played, while Cork, the merchant city, paid for it all. And that's a sort of theme running through what I'm going to be saying today. Now, they'd both been insignificant port towns in 1600, minnows in Renaissance European terms. Dublin's. Post medieval growth began at the end of Elizabeth's reign as Gaelic resistance in the north was ending and state building and plantation schemes got underway in earnest. The small walled town of Cork adapted somewhat awkwardly to the new order, uh, but Dublin enjoyed a mini boom in the early 1600s. Then the turmoil of the 1640s, which changed everything sieges, expulsions, expropriation, and religious persecution on a systematic scale. But immediately following this time of troubles, the two cities sprang into into new life. Now, it's, of course, true that a number of other Irish port cities also began a long growth cycle around this time. Uh, But in the 10 leading cities that I've included in my recent study uh, that Anne-Marie mentioned, uh, spanning the period from the 1660s to the 1820s, Oliver Cromwell's demise to Daniel O'Connell's uh, ascendancy, Dublin and Cork stand out. Stand out as the first off the block, and they remained the two top cities in population terms throughout that long period. In the early 1660s, Dublin had a population of about 35,000 residents, Cork, had somewhat over 7,000 residents, and we really have to go. 160 years forward to the first national census of 1821 to get another comparison. By that point, 1821, Dublin and its immediate suburbs had a population of around 227,000, Cork about 80,000, indicating obviously a transformation in scale of both places, but also it's an indication of Cork's faster growth over that period, indeed a more than tenfold growth between the 1660s. And 1821. So the first point to register is that this long 18th century era was a time of prolonged, sustained growth for these cities. And this pattern of growth was very different from what happened in the following century, in the 19th century, or at least from the 1820s the slow growth of Dublin and a striking stagnation of Cork's population, really up until and beyond 1900. So the 18th century dynamism, dynamism is. A is a memory, uh, is a distant memory at that point. Now, in some respects, great 18th century expansion of the two cities, very similar, center of gravity, uh, in each case moved east, moved downstream from the remnants uh, of the city walls, now entirely uh, disregarded in what was an era of prolonged peace. It's true that within the circuit of the former walls, high and low status businesses intermingled, Main Street, in Cork City, High Street in Dublin, were always crowded places, whatever we may think from looking at James Moulton's uh, serene engravings. But most city folk were living outside the former walled areas, those with money seeking out fashionable locations, those without resources crowding into market uh, districts, back lanes, dockland streets, along the Liffey and above the Lee. A second common factor was the physical appearance of their streetscapes what in in England has been prisoned, the urban renaissance, was adapted and solely adopted here. I'm thinking of the rules of classical architecture becoming more widely assimilated, a brick replacing stone, timber, as the dominant uh, building material, and the design of public buildings becoming a matter of public interest. In Dublin, the the great cluster of uh, public buildings associated with Thomas Byrne early in the 18th century marked the initiation of this process. In Cork, uh, it's really hard to see any architectural practitioners who last very long uh, until that is Michael Shanahan, uh, uh, who leaves his mark on the city late in the century. Now, a point to emphasize here is that the physical expansion of the two cities was neither planned nor closely regulated. But You might say, what what about the Phoenix Park, the Stevens Green, The construction of the quays, the wide streets commissioners, uh, or in Cork, what about the Mardyke or the creation of Patrick Street? And I think the point I'm making is that not that there was no government or corporation-inspired initiative, uh, not least in Restoration Dublin, but taking everything in the round, government, city government anyway, was weak, and building controls and street planning were reactive, not proactive. When it came to the development of publicly owned property, of town commons, parks, and reclaimable foreshores, these were in effect privatized. And in any case, most land in and around the city uh, was not publicly, but privately owned. In other words, the organic growth of these cities was the work of hundreds of small speculative players and a handful of large ones. Uh, And here, uh, the role of city merchants Uh, the big import-exporting firms uh, in funding such development looms large. Humphrey Jervis, really the pioneer merchant of urban development in Dublin, a great pioneer north of the Liffey, and like many urban speculators who come later, he had a very rollercoaster career, including a time in prison, but we won't go there. We know less of the early pioneers in Cork who funded reclamation eastwards, but a key figure in the 1690s was William Dunscombe, uh, the merchant behind the layout and initial development of what we know as Oliver Plunkett Street and the series of narrow streets that cut across it. But in both cities, the names of those now handling property are, are Protestant names, be it Presbyterian, Church of Ireland, or Quaker. Although from the 1660s, as a result of penal legislation and land confiscation at the end of the uh, mid-century wars, Catholic traders and urban landholders land were effectively shut out of urban land speculation. Now, of course, this came at a time when uh, local government was uh, in, in, uh, in exclusively Protestant hands, apart from a brief Jacobite moment when roles were reversed. Uh, and Protestant merchants from, from that time controlled what you might say is the commanding heights of business in both cities, But their overall commercial dominance can be exaggerated as we see. So far, I've been suggesting a common pattern of city growth. But what's more striking, more interesting, I think, are the contrasts between the two leading cities. Dublin, even back in Shakespeare's time, had been beginning to be what we can call a court city, a place of resort for business and pleasure for the rich, the politically connected, the legally endangered the shapers and sharpers of 17th-century Ireland. And that dimension, of course, grew and grew in the following century, but with the vice-regal court, the parliament, the courts of law, the college, the concentration of lawyers and physicians, all magnets of varying strength attracting the new landowning classes of rural Ireland to the capital city at irregular intervals. This irregular tide of high spenders, supported a whole ecosystem of high-end retailers, specialist services, and of course, providers of entertainment. Indeed, the well-documented history of theatre in 18th century Dublin, particularly, is, is very revealing about this, this wider society, its tastes, its moods, and its, competition, its composition. And here we just have an image of Lottery Night in Dublin Theatre in 1780. Uh, another opportunity for extravagant display while the drums were being rolled and the tickets taken out, uh, display by the patrons in a theatrical setting. But it does seem, if you look closely, that the patrons uh, by that stage, 1780, were a bit more diverse than in the early aristocratic days of, of Snark Alley. Now Dublin thrived on being the site for a unique cluster of national institutions, ones that I've sort of mentioned, uh, Ireland only and quite, uh, still quite small university um amply endowed uh, by Parliament, based across the street, uh, the courts, the massive barracks, uh, and of course, the castle. These were Dublin's exclusive activities. Just to take the castle, the, the physical and economic impact of Dublin Castle on the city really varied from, from viceroy to viceroy. A few, a very few had lasting impact. Obviously the first Duke of Ormond, and we would associate with the Phoenix Park and uh, the Hospital and Kilmainham and so on. Uh, much later, the first Duke of Dorset, uh, and then the man who opened up Phoenix Park to the public, the first, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield. But the point is that the generality of viceroys coming from England, while they may have determined the the quality of upper class social life and partying, did for the most part did not leave a legacy. Whereas Parliament did. A college Green Parliament was an increasingly active institution, accommodating in theory over 400 members. It was both a social magnet uh, when in session, and throughout the century, it was a source of public funds that it allocated disproportionately towards Dublin itself, towards Dublin-related projects. Uh, the best example is, of course, the canals, uh, the Grand, the royal, etc., which were, to a considerable extent, funded from the public purse. But if you take another public building, uh, the Customs House, um, the old Customs House uh, in Temple Bar. Now, the location and funding of Customs Houses wasn't strictly a a parliamentary matter, but one uh, taken by the, the revenue commissioners who were answerable ultimately to London. But here we have Thomas Berg's massive building on Essex Quay. Uh, Beside Jervis's Essex Bridge, there you can see on the right, uh, and it's revealing. It towered over the inner keys and was designed to house the commissioners themselves who managed the collection of customs and excise right across the country. But the other reason for its very large size was that customs duties were going to be levied on imports, cloth, spices, wine, sugars, high value raw materials, and so on. And throughout the 18th century, Dublin was the principal point for these things to come into the country, principal point of import, far ahead of Cork or the provincial ports. Dublin importers dominated the national market like never before or since, and the customs house was, as a result, it seemed an overcrowded place uh, even from the time it opened. Great pressure to get a bigger customs house, which eventually led, of course, to the, the great Gandon building that we all know downstream. Now, Dublin's primacy as national warehouse was directly related to Dublin becoming also the great national workshop for finer goods, specifically textiles, finer clothing that could be could be made up close to the upmarket retailers and their fussy customers. And thus, and thus we find the hundreds, possibly into thousands, of silk and woolen workshops mainly in in Dublin's liberties in the southwest of the city. Uh, In good times, this was well-paid employment for those at the loom, but as Swift reminds us, there are miserably hard times for the draper too. And indeed this uh, engraving relates to one such time in 1793 and upper-class lady giving some kind of dole to the the weaver and his family. It's one of the few illustrations we actually have of a Dublin workshop from the period Weavers and drapers were a very visible, sometimes a very turbulent part of Dublin street life. Now, by the time the merchants, talking about a few moments ago, had funded the construction of a new exchange building, uh, which appears in the, uh, which is completed in the late 1770s, things were changing. By then there was a growing chasm between the big Dublin merchants and bankers, who would overseen this project, and the world of Thomas Street shopkeepers and liberties weavers. Now, the exchange itself, very fine neoclassical building, uh, was built on a fiction, that there was still a need for face-to-face contact uh, between business people at, at that kind of location. It was very much a kind of prestige project uh, that has perhaps more of a, a political than an economic uh, rationale. But the one place that was still a commercial powerhouse was another of Thomas Berg's buildings, the Linen Hall, which you see there marked on uh, Roke's map from the 1750s. The the Linen Hall on the north side with its near 300 odd offices, uh, flax and yarn halls nearby, just near Bolton Street. I should say, was just near Bolton Street. Now the hall was hugely important because of. Dublin's role in the Irish linen trade. Fine linens woven and bleached across 20 counties were for the most part brought here to be sold largely for export. And Dublin dealers had for generations uh, provided the short-term credit that allowed the rural industry uh, to grow and become the the great manufacturing export of 18th century Ireland. And the prosperity that came with that trade in Dublin had multiple spin-off benefits grocers and chandlers, ironmongers, and inns of the inner north side in places like Church Street uh, and Pill Lane and Smithfield. Okay, forgetting about Cork, the story there was very different. Unlike in the other old Munster towns, the real rupture in Cork in the 1650s, in the Cromwellian era, was an almost completely new group of expatriate Protestant merchants taking over the heart of the city. They soon became involved in the fledgling Atlantic provisions trades, acting as agents for shippers based in England and Holland. But they also ventured on their own account to Spain, Portugal, and the Caribbean. No less than said, 17 ships have been built for the city in uh, in the seven years after 1660, which quote, is more than the rest of Ireland has done. For in Cork, they are substantial rich men. Now in that first generation of Protestant dominance, merchants perfected the preparation and packing of salted beef for sale in Southern Europe and the Caribbean. And that business contained with relatively little change for generations. Indeed, this image uh, inside uh, the slaughterhouse uh, is a cartouche in Roke's map of Cork uh, from the 1750s, almost a century later. Dissenters, in particular Quakers, were prominent early on, many with close family links to Bristol, but a few Catholic firms also benefited from the city's takeoff as a major Atlantic port. And then moving forward, despite the short-lived Jacobite takeover and then the near-total destruction of Cork's suburbs during Marlborough's siege in 1690, recovery was rapid. And over the next two decades, the city benefited from official English naval contracting Vessels of the Royal Navy and from access that they gave to uh, the protection of commercial vessels at a time when war on the sea could affect commerce as much as, as, as naval ships, and Cork was particularly sort of chosen out as the point where convoys would collect and where provisioning would be done. This, I say, this is really some sort of settling down as a sort of standard pattern uh, at the turn of of the century, at the end of the 17th century. Advantage that its old monster rivals, Kinsale and Yall and Waterford, lacked. And the abundant, safe anchorage in Cork's Lower Harbour, helped strengthen its appeal as the great wartime provisioning center. And this continues in war after war through the 18th century. Now the export- exporting merchant firms always enjoyed close to- social connections with the region's gentry families and indeed were recruited from them. But in the slaughter yards of the north suburbs, we can see dynasties of cattle dealers and butchers surviving and thriving in what was a tough business. Um, I mean, at the peak, something in the order of a hundred thousand bullocks were being slaughtered uh, in Cork uh, each year. And the these involved in the hard end of the trade were predominantly Catholic. A few of them went on to become wealthy export merchants in their own right, uh, the Moylan clan being a classic. Case. Now, Cork continued to control the beef trade in all its parts for over a century. And there was also a profusion of tallow chandlers, skinners, tanners, each trade handling a commodity with a distinct overseas market. Cork was also the unchallenged centre of the salted butter trade as well. Here, once again, it was the introduction of English and Dutch practices in the 17th century that laid the basis for what became one of the staples of the 18th century. Maintaining a consistent quality in the produce dispatched for consumption in tropical heat was even more demanding than in the case of beef. And protecting the reputation of a merchant's brand overseas, a brand on the barrel, required close oversight uh, by the merchants of butter buyers, coopers, and packers. Wool, woolen cloth, and worsted yarn exports were also a major part of the commercial rise of cork. And for a few years in the early 18th century, these were actually more valuable than beef and butter. However, the value added to wool passing through the city was far less than for beef or butter. Uh, but we shouldn't overlook the, the smaller version of Dublin's liberties in, the, in Cork's Blackpool district, where uh, a community of woolen and wo- worsted weavers were prominent in the recreational life of the city, at least every Mayday, and who at times, uh, got notoriety for attacking and destroying carts of cloth coming down from uh, by road from Dublin, seemed to be threatening their own employment. Uh, perhaps the first manifest, manifestation of leaside resentment of Dublin uh, dominance. It's something we see particularly in the 1760s and 1770s, the sabotaging of cloth coming into the city uh, to the drapers uh, and putting at risk uh, local employment. Now Cork Cork Harbour remains far and away the busiest Munster port throughout the 18th century. But if we analyse it, only about a fifth, only about 20% of the ships dropping anchor in Cork Harbour were Irish owned. This is because most provisions trading was conducted on a commission basis with orders reaching Cork from all directions, ranging from large London merchant houses, French colonial firms in Nantes and Bordeaux, Two substantial slave-owning planters uh, and their agents in the Caribbean islands, Barbados, Jamaica, etc. Now the value of cork exports, taken as a whole, far exceeded those of Dublin throughout the century. But its relatively modest merchant exchange, which you see uh, here, uh, completed in 1710, very. Old fashioned compared to the spanking exchange we saw a few minutes ago, built uh, in Dublin in the 1770s. But this exchange remained in rickety use uh, throughout the century. Cork's fine customs house, now the core section of the Crawford Gallery, uh, is also modest in comparison with Thomas Berg's uh, structure in Dublin that we saw a few minutes ago. There's a sense that Cork was slow to participate in a kind of urban Renaissance. Uh, certainly, in terms of public buildings and public spaces. Now, there was admittedly the creation of the lengthy Mardyke Walk in uh, 1719, uh, a private initiative. Here, at the view is uh, around 1800, but it, it essentially was a private initiative, eventually uh, taken into public care. Uh, and of the, the spaces around some fine freestanding merchant houses west of the old city on. Bachelors Key and Fen's Key, at the northeast, at the northwest of the old city. City building projects were, it seems, in the hands of, of master craftsmen, not architects. Uh, and the major public improvements uh, came late, beginning really in the 1760s, uh, with Davis Ducart's monumental mayoralty House in Henry, Henry Street, not Mercy Hospital, uh, outshining Dublin's Mansion House. And then, following that, the infilling of the, the muddy canals creation of Grand Parade around 1780, Patrick Street filled in around 83, and the South Mall uh, culverted after 1801. Uh, here, uh, I think you have on uh, Beaufort's map of that year, 1801, the Mall was still open uh, to the river uh, if its uh, prestigious status still in the future. Look north to, uh, on the map to uh, then Georgia Street, on about Plunkett Street uh, in modern times, narrow, uh, but very much a fashionable artery with Cork's Theatre marked there with the symbol W on the south side, and the, the pokey assembly room uh, to the left, to the west, marked with the, the letter U. But just taking this rather murky photograph from the Day Collection from uh, around 1860, a very early photograph of a house in Grand Parade, number 46 almost overhanging the the South Channel of the Lee uh, and built by Sir James Chatterton, uh, barrister and MP around 1788. Quite a daring site beside the river, but he was one of the early developers of land uh, just nearby along the South Mall. And such a monumental townhouse, uh, closing the vista looking westwards along South Mall, would have been impressive in any Dublin street. Built just on the eve of the Great Cork Flood of 1789, the house originally had a long flight of steps leading up to a first floor entrance, uh, which had been uh, modified just before the time of this photograph. Incidentally, you may notice the distressed statue of George II there, um, visible uh, on the left. Um, it was uh, not an original feature when the house was built, and it was taken down shortly after this photograph. Um, Signed to a, uh, a lesser state. But my point really is here you have a very fine townhouse built by a, a, a kind of lawyer developer uh, in what was to become in Napoleonic time very much a kind of key development uh, point in the city. But one of the most remarkable features of Cork up to that point was the, the vigor of its church building, notably in the first half of the 18th century, Anglican, dissenter, and Catholic. Four very substantial Church of Ireland parish churches were built anew in the 1720s and 30s, the most famous being, of course, the multicoloured St. Anne's Shandon, equipped, at least from 1752, uh, with those eight bells that still promise, when us you ring, we'll sweetly sing. The medieval cathedral of St. Finbad, or St. Protestant hands, was demolished in the 1730s and replaced with a, a modest classical structure uh, but we don't even know the architecture. Now, part of the reason for this church rebuilding was damage that had happened back in the 1690s siege, but it's also a reminder that the, the central parishes, of course, were strongly, perhaps even predominantly Protestant at least until mid-century. Whereas across the southern south parish and north of the city, Shandon and Blackpool, the centre of the workshop industry and meat processing, these were heavily Catholic throughout the century. So, that overall, taking suburbs and city together, there was probably a Catholic majority at any time, but not an overwhelming one. So, the first substantial place of, of post Jacobite Catholic worship was in the suburbs in South Parish, where, quote, a long cabin that will contain about 400 persons was built in the 1690s, very early, uh, and then replaced by a slated chapel in the 1720s. While on the north side, on rising ground in Shandon, a new site was chosen around 1730 for another replacement chapel on a fine eminence built in a large, sumptuous manner. And that overlooked the, the island parishes uh, where modest friaries were also beginning to appear. So that, in the sense, particularly the, the site of the, uh, the church overlooking the, the, the town, um, and the site of the future Catholic cathedral, uh, in that very strategic location. Uh, overlooking the island parishes. Uh, it's quite a, a telling reminder of the, the limitations of the penal laws. Now, most of the workers in 18th century Cork, the butchers, and building workers, porters, and sailors, operated in an informal world where neither the state nor local government regulated working life. Some trades had strong internal rules and customs. We actually know very little of this. There were 15 trade guilds in Cork on certain origin, but they lacked privileges or property, and hardly featured in uh, the corporate life uh, of the city. Now, that point is worth making that negative, because it's very different in Dublin. Here, uh, 25 guilds of the city did enjoy corporate privileges. They supplied uh, nominated members for the lower house of the common council. They had many of them as here, halls, the Taylor's Hall, of course, that still survives, and property, and they were a lively, and from the 1740s, a politicized element in the capital city. Now, of course, with the anti-Catholic bylaws enforced from the 1690s and the latest, full membership of the trade guilds had become a Protestant preserve. But because of the abundant numbers of Protestant craftsmen and would freemen, almost none of the Dublin guilds were short of bona fide members. And then there were the so called quarter brothers, those who wouldn't take the religious oaths, who couldn't take the religious oaths, around of conscience, uh, and Catholic craftsmen in large numbers paid the quarter fee to become effectively second class guildsmen, to have the legal protections and social intercourse that went with guild membership, uh, but not the political rights uh, of c- civic freedom. For better or worse, the vitality of the Dublin guilds, particularly the larger ones, made Dublin different from the provincial cities and helped shape the growth of popular politics and the politics of the street later on in the century. Now, of course, lots of other things have made for that kind of politicization, parliament, uh, the courts, the castle, the lively publishing industry, which gave Dublin a, a heightened sense of what was going on politically and in the world outside. But the point I'm making is that the culture of the guilds was an important factor to the frequency for instance, the contested parliamentary elections for the city, starting in the 1740s, turned the guild halls into places uh, where candidates uh, would appear and debate uh, in front of the Freeman voters. Political debate is taking place in a public space, and it made also the uh, members often ready uh, to be uh, recruited by opposition parliamentarians for demonstrations, parades, and protests from time to time, there's nothing like that in Cork. Now, another great ingredient relevant here in the, in the political culture of Dublin were the prominence of dissenters. The venerable image that we have here is of Joseph Fade, he of George Street, which prompts us to, to remember the enduring importance of Quakers, of course Quaker, uh, Presbyterian, French Calvinist and Baptist business families and artisans more in Dublin than in Cork, and their particular importance in wholesale trading and banking. And we know nothing of Fade's political outlook, but in those that came after, most dissenting families in Dublin stood in opposition to those insiders who dominated the corporation of Ireland, uh, dominated the government of the city. And dissenters were strongly represented in the campaign to build that lovely, wild exchange later to establish a Chamber of Commerce kind of outside the, constitu- the old chartered uh, constitution of the city. Uh, many such families were, of course, involved in the linen trade and had Ulster origins and connections. But what is the Catholic story uh, in all of this Dublin? Catholics had probably reached a majority in the capital by the 1750s, that's it, a majority, again. It's certainly like we had that up to 1640. But many of the crafts and most of the wholesale trades Was still in Protestant hands. However, there was a a strong residual Catholic presence in overseas trade, especially with Europe and the the seafarers and port workers were strongly Catholic. We can hang a lot on the story of one man, Edward Byrne. He started as an apprentice grocer in Francis Street in the 1750s and went on to become the wealthiest Catholic trader an industrial investor in town. The full story hasn't really been documented yet anyway, but we know that sugar importation and refining were part of his remarkable portfolio of activity in the last quarter of the century. He had his finger in so many pies. Byrne emerged, perhaps against his wishes, as a premier figure in the Catholic committee at the start of the 1790s, a movement that had evolved from quiet Advocacy for Catholic relief to the public mobilization of Catholic demands for political rights. Byrne and some of the other wealthy traders were sort of involved, but they kept relatively quiet. And the dominant politicians who really sort of pushed the boat outward were slightly less wealthy, but nevertheless prominent figures. You can hear like John Keough, who's uh, Silk Mercer. Uh, Edward Sweetman, the brewer, uh, veteran uh, merchant, Thomas Bruckle. They were the but as I say, their wealth paled beside that of Byrne. But the moment when they and Byrne were able to sort of congregate together in December of 1792 in the Taylors Guild Hall, they had that meeting of 284 Catholic delegates from the counties and towns of Ireland so-called back-lane parliament, we really cross a line. That, of course, led to the uh, Catholic Relief Act after delegates from the meeting went to London, went to court, went indeed to to, uh, pay their uh, respects to King George. Uh, The Catholic Relief Act was a consequence of 1793 Act, which gave partial, but not full readmission of Catholics to political life. Now, what's curious is there was almost no sign of cork in that Taylor's Hall convention, compared with reasonably good representation from Limerick and Waterford, and a lot from sort of lesser places, a bit puzzling. And if we take a look across the, that revolutionary decade of the 1790s, other contrasts emerge. Dublin, the center of political radicalism, energized first by the French Revolution, and increasingly by the rough hand of the state, uh, with the great Jacobin Club, the, the Society of the United Irishmen morphing from a kind of political debating chamber into a revolutionary organization and drawing on substantial support within the workshop world of the liberties and the market districts of the city. But in Cork, little of that. Now, every history of 1798 talks of Arthur and Roger O'Connor, of John. Shears, who you have here, John and Henry Shears, John Burke, uh, John Sweeney, all cork men. But with the exception of Sweeney, these other, figures, these other radical figures, including John, young John Shears, um, the barrister, uh, these made their, uh, their careers uh, very short careers at national, at Dublin level, not in their native cork. Now there was indeed a mobilization of oath bound United Irish cells uh, in Cork City in 1797 98, but this came about late. Recruits were, it seems, politically raw, and they were, of course, untested in 1798, unless you include what happens out of Clama Dublin radicalism, which certainly was very strong up to the eve of the 98 rebellion was Remarkable for its religious mix, particularly at senior levels. Cork radicalism, opaque as it is, seems to have had more of a sectarian edge. It's perhaps not entirely coincidental that there's almost uh, no sense of religious segregation in 18th century Dublin. Some parishes in the old city were certainly more Catholic than in the fashionable east side, but before, but before 1800, occupations, trades, and streets were, despite everything, Fairly mixed. In Cork, this was much less the case, and religious contrasts between suburb and the city and the marsh were starker. And I think we can only assume that patterns of lower class sociability uh, reflected this in everyday life. And that may have mattered a lot. Now, we don't have time to kind of peer into the uh, events of spring 1798. But before the smoke of the rebellion had dispersed, London was determined in realising the long-talked project of Anglo-Irish Parliamentary Union. It's relevant for us to note the very different responses in Dublin and Cork to the promised closure of the Irish Parliament. Most Protestant Dubliners, most local property owners of whatever religion, and indeed many Catholics in the capital, were bitterly opposed to the government's plans but most cork voices were united in support of the measure. Why? In the flood of newspaper and pamphlet commentary that were produced in the long month 1799, uh, grave warnings uh, were set of the the economic cost of union to Dublin's economy, how it would affect property values, employment, and the rest. Dublin, one writer argued, uh, is now, I quote, in a state of the highest beauty and improvement. It will be brought low. With its insecure harbour and shallow river, the city will decline. Cork, on the other hand, will derive every benefit which Dublin must lose. The situation of Cork in the map of Europe will draw draw commerce to her great harbour, and thus one part of the nation will be aggrandised at the expense of another. The Dublin writing. Another anti unionist wondered what happens in a few years when Cork. Or some other southern city has outstripped Dublin in trade. It may be expedient then, quote, to remove the seat of government and of justice to the more fl- opulent and flourishing city. If this were to take place, situated as Dublin is in the middle of the channel, remote from either ocean, how soon would it dwindle into a fishing town? And there's much in this vein. Now, of course these prognostications were wrong. Union was passed, Dublin was changing, indeed was de-industrializing, at least in the liberties, and the eventual working out of the Union hastened that process. But with the enormous transport changes coming down the line, the completion of the canals, then the steamships, then the railways, and with the growth of government, of law, education, and the higher profession, Dublin... 19th century Dublin remained a place of abundant opportunity in the decades ahead. Now, Cork City was certainly a beneficiary of the prolonged war with Napoleonic France, and great fortunes were made locally. That wealth was perhaps more obvious now in the mushrooming villas overlooking the beauties of Cork Harbour than in developments within the city, like the townhouse we saw a few moments ago. And it's ironic that perhaps the finest building from these post-union years was the Cork County Jail, uh, now uh, part of the UCC campus, you recognize looking south uh, towards where the the campus now stretches. A complex begun in the 1790s and near the Western Road and greatly extended and refashioned shortly after the wars by the Payne brothers who went on to design many of Munster's Greek uh, revival uh, landmarks of the next generation, not least the great courthouse in Washington Street. But Cork, after the wars, after 1815, was in trouble. The early promise of water powered industrialization in Glenmire, on the edge of the city, and in Barney, uh, had faded. And new style milling and brewing, profitable to be sure, failed to give the great employment that the old food processing industries of the previous century had done. Washington Street, or as it was originally called, Great Georgia Street was Cork's first and only planned wide street. Well, the second city's wide street commission, although established way back in the 1760s, only got the financial powers that Dublin commissioners had long, adjo- had long enjoyed, uh, only got them in 1822, 40 plus years after Dublin. Yet even in the case of Dublin, its greatest wide street, the, the, the centre of the modern city was only completed in the early post-Union years. And of course, its signature features, I'm referring to Sackville Street here, Bonnell Street, but but of course the signature features of uh, this great uh, boulevard, uh, the pillar and the GPO, uh, are only from the post-Union period. Sackville Street as it was, may have been long planned, uh, but it only really became the capital's hub uh, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So, to sort of Begin to bring things to a close. I've been touching here on the similarities and differences between the two first cities and a little on the occasional moments when their interests collided. Cork wasn't the only place that earned foreign exchange for Ireland. Dublin wasn't the great parasite drawing the lifeblood of the provinces that some thought, uh, even if it was something of a privileged place in the old scheme of things. And just as we can see from Ulster imprint on 18th century Dublin. We can see Cork imprints here too. So it was something of an upper class cork mafia uh, in the capital city. But let me close by just mentioning two very different Cork influencers. I can use the term on Dublin. Very different men, very different people. Uh, first, John Healy Hutchinson, long standing, very long standing MP for Cork City, unscrupulous place hunter and promoter of his family's interests, and for some 20 years provost of Trinity College. Highly unpopular in the university, he was, in fact, a breath of fresh air, a mold-breaker there, an educational reformer, and a quiet supporter of limited Catholic entry into the university, all the while lobbying for Cork's commercial interest in Parliament and the castle, with, it seemed, wearying intensity. Now, Healy Hutchison may never have met his near-contemporary, the daughter of a minor Catholic landowner, Nana Nagel. She certainly was an educational reformer at the ground level in Cork City from the 1750s and was, of course, the foundress of the Presentation Order. And even if we strip away the hagiography surrounding her, I think she remains as the single most influential Cork woman of the century, uh, collaborating here in Dublin with Theresa Mullally, foundress of the George's Hill Convent. But it was really Nagel who set in motion. Revolution in educational provision enriching generations of poorer families here in Dublin, there in Cork, and the far elsewhere. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, David. I'm back now. I just wanted to put it out to the audience for everybody watching. um, I'll just see if we have any questions. Um, Was there much, I suppose, would you say, animosities between the the Catholic traders or the Protestant traders, or was there much tension between them at the time?
1: I, I think it. It very much depends on the period that we're looking at I mean in a sense uh, history moves faster in the 1780s and 90s and a lot of what had seemed to be fairly standard patterns of social interaction and it's like people knowing where they stood on a, in a very unequal world were challenged and challenged up to a point successfully in the 80s and 90s in other words the mobilization of middle class and wealthier Catholics in both Dublin and Cork taking different forms in the uh, 80s and particularly the early 90s has a kind of knock on effect on uh, Catholic and Protestant uh, interactions at lower social levels. Um, but I think the point I would make is that the the, the relative absence of any sense of religious uh, segregation in Dublin uh, must be one of the factors that gives When you look at particularly the the history of the labor organization, the journeyman combinations, about which I wasn't really able to say very much, uh, there's no sense that they are uh, religiously specific. I mean, it's true that certain trades were heavily associated with particular, uh, I mean, the textiles, and particularly the finest end of the textiles, were were, uh, fairly strongly Protestant up until the late 18th century. But, I mean, the wealthiest silk merchant in the late 18th century was uh, of course, Kyo, the, uh, one of the leaders of the Catholic Committee. Um, and uh, while you might say, oh, well, if you look north of the river to the uh, Dublin market area, was well, not a very Catholic area. No. I, I mean, if you look at the area around Church Street and Pill Lane, who are the most important radical figures? It's Henry Jackson, uh, the Presbyterian Iron founder, uh, John Chambers, the printer on Abbey Street. Uh, and uh, they are enormously important figures in kind of the inflow of democratic ideas into the city at that point. But as I say, with Cork, I think it is different. Uh, And in some ways, it's more difficult to get the the pulse of things in Cork in the 80s and early 90s. But as I say, my sense is certainly that uh, when you do get the development of kind of radical organisation, it's much more quickly, in Cork seems to have a kind of uh, religious edge to it, uh, much more so than in the case of Dublin.
0: Okay, let that answer my question. Thanks very much, David. It's very interesting. Did many Dubliners move to Cork for business or was it all one way from Cork to Dublin?
1: It's a good question. I mean, what one certainly finds is that there is uh, a lot of family and sort of friendship connections uh, between firms in uh, the, the major cities, and particularly between uh, 18th century Dublin and Cork. But it, it's, um, it's not that... And what is also true is that uh, some of the crafts, including many of the, the uh, textile crafts, uh, involved certainly the journeymen uh, allowing them to tramp between cities. So you do get a movement, kind of artists, you know, it's happening, uh, but how important it was, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure. Just to mention, I suppose, architect uh, Thomas Ivory, uh, who uh, is a Cork native, uh, but it's a very Major figure uh, in late 18th uh for instance, the great building in Blackhall Place that was originally the King's Hospital, um, and uh, in another case, uh, uh, say John Butts, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, painter uh, who left Cork to become basically a, a theatre painter, and there are many, many other cases. But I mean, the, in the craft, there is a certain kind of uh, sense of mobility, uh, and there would be very few uh, barriers. Uh, to those who've done their time uh, moving from uh, a master in Dublin to a master in Cork as a journeyman.
0: Oh, brilliant. Thanks very much, David. Uh, We have another one there now that is asking, what role, if any, did Cork play in the transatlantic slave trade?
1: Yes, if time had been more generous, I would have touched on that. I mean, you can answer that in two ways. There's very little direct involvement by those Cork merchants who are, Ship owning or involved venturing into the um, southern Europe and beyond in the slave trade, at least that we're aware of. I'm not saying none, but very little direct involvement. Uh, whereas if you look at expatriate uh, monster merchant families in France, in particular in Nantes, uh, you will see very direct involvement in the French slave trade. But that's kind of getting off the point. The, the, I think that the more honest answer is to say, while there isn't the direct involvement in the slave trade, the Caribbean market for the foodstuffs that are processed and handled and dispatched from Cork uh, is enormously important. In other words, the slave islands, uh, French and English islands, uh, are the consumers are, to some extent, and don't exaggerate the point. but certainly it, it's certainly a very considerable part of the rise of the provisions trade. Uh, now, the foodstuffs were in the case of the French islands, uh, destined indeed for uh, the actual uh, for, for, for slave, enslaved families' um, own use, whereas the slightly more expensive cuts of beef and the better butters were going to the, the planters' families and to uh, the free households in the, the slave islands. And to say that, I think one has to answer the question in that rather indirect way, say that the, the uh, it is by, uh, consistent involvement in an economy which slavery was such a large part uh, that one has to say that without uh, the slave system uh, the Irish economy in the 18th century would have been substantially different.
0: Brilliant thanks very much David that's great Uh, we have another question here for you and it's asking is there any evidence of Catholic Protestant marriages and if so was it mostly Protestant men and Catholic
1: women would you know? It's within the city, or rather within the cities, it does indeed seem at the level uh, of um, you know, uh, artisan and uh, persons who are not in the regulated trades, uh, that the r- religious alliances, I mean, it, it's very hard to say, but, but there is certainly the belief, let's say, uh, within the established church, uh, of a lot of uh, marriages uh, across the religious divide Particularly in the early 18th century, and indeed, some of the kind of um, initiatives are directly designed to, to, to halt that or, or, or to, to, to um, compromise it. But at the higher levels, uh, not, really, no. And what is, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't, but it, it's relatively little. And what is striking is that even within the denomination, I mean, the, the, the Quaker marriage field was largely within and among Quakers, uh, Presbyterians. Generally speaking, uh, seeking out uh, marriage uh, connections with co-religionists uh, and so on. Uh, so it's not that there isn't a, a kind of a single divide between Protestant and Catholic. It is simply that within religious communities there is a tendency for, I think, we can call endogamy. Um, but in, in terms of that kind of lower class intermarrying, I think it's probably uh, quite common, but very hard to document. Although. Uh, we can try and see through some of the uh, late eighteenth century Catholic baptismal registers that do survive uh, some little bits of evidence of it, but I think that's almost certainly going to underestimate uh, its frequency.
0: No problem. I'll just maybe give one or two more questions, and then we can um, we can finish up. So, uh, the next one was: When did the size of a working class Protestant population of in Dublin decline? Or would that be later?
1: Well, I think the um relative decline is there in the period that we're talking about. The absolute decline of Protestant numbers uh, is probably uh, only from the very late in the 18th century. But the big thing I think I would say is that there's a kind of redistribution going on with the decline of the, the, the craft industries of the West of the city, particularly with the textile decline from the 1780s, 90s, Naughties, 1810s. It's a sort of very long process of decline. And as textile, it, it, it isn't that they disappear, but that they, they, the kind of prestige of that kind of work, the earnings in that kind of work, are uh, slipping, uh, particularly with the, some uh, mechanisation within them in the Dublin area. But that becomes less and less associated with a, a kind of Protestant uh, working class. And th- therefore, the, it's like taking the west of the city, I think the decline of its Protestant character, decline of the, uh, the size of uh, the congregations in a place like St Catherine's, uh, St Luke's, um, St Nicholas Without, which would have been uh, strong, that decline would have been already evident uh, in the uh, the last twenty years of the eighteenth century. But there is a, a very long-lasting, uh, you know, Protestant. Cr- in certain niches that goes far, far beyond the period that we're talking about. But I think the, the big thing, I think, is the changing s- status and a- 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 sort of quality of economic activity in the area that we call the immediate liberties.
0: Brilliant. Thanks very much. And then there's another one here that's asking Did the geography or topography of Cork with its many river channels and hills
1: restrict its development in any way? Well, it shaped its development. Whether it, <laughs> was, uh, I mean, the, 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 Issue is it, it, it's one we can kind of argue about because in a way, I mean, what was the great strength of Cork was uh, certainly the accessibility of its keys uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the the access from the, the lower harbour. But there is a real issue building up from kind of congestion in the 1760s, and that's really the explanation behind the building of the, the navigation wall. Healy Hutchinson very much involved in that Uh, and the navigation wall behind which you have uh, everything from uh, the new modern docks down to uh, Pocky Kiev. But uh, even with those uh, um, problems, I think the the difficulty lay in the narrowness of the approach channel rather than in uh, the particular um, kind of multiplicity of channels within the, uh, the urban area itself. I think it's probably fair to say that um, what gave and gives Cork, uh, it, uh, central Cork uh, so much of its kind of attractions now are precisely the kind of topography of the channels uh, of 200 years ago. Uh, in other words, if you had had the, the kind of linear development that you see in Oliver Plunkett Street and Eastwood, the area that was fully reclaimed uh, from the time, it would be much less attractive than the, uh, the wines uh, of Patrick Street and the streets immediately to the north of it. But I mean, there were. I mean, the standard belief was that you know Cork uh, was singularly uh, privileged in terms of its topography. Although, of course, a point I have made, but it's, it's very relevant. Is it? uh, bigger vessels, of course, uh, certainly from the second half of the century, the 18th century, are uh, based down uh, at cove uh, or uh, passage uh, near Passage West, and it's lighters for the most part that are making the trip up to the keys of Cork. But that worked quite well. Uh, And uh, in a sense, uh, that was part of the uh, diversity of of the site that allowed uh, even with great growth uh, ultimately coming with the steamboats, Cork still remained a very accessible port Uh, compared to say some venerable old ports across the Irish Sea like Chester that uh, become completely hopeless with the the growth of trade uh, And and, and in in Ireland. I mean, other ports are much greater issues uh, than Cork did with its kind of maritime access. Uh, so it was, is fortunate.
0: Oh, thanks, David. Uh, and then there is only two more questions left, so I'll do these. So was the Dutch influence in Cork a contributor to its overwhelming Protestant ethos as compared to Dublin?
1: Well, the Dutch influence is important in both cities, but the, uh, I think there is, a, uh, the, there is a, a period, and I'm really talking the, the kind of post-Cromwellian decade. 60s, 70s, 80s of the 17th century, when you, you, you certainly see a small number of Dutch, uh, families that either are Dutch or have uh, connections very much with um, Amsterdam that play an important part in the early history of the uh, Cork's Atlantic involvement. But the, the Dutch impact, relatively speaking, is is perhaps even greater in Limerick than in Cork, uh, but we don't have time uh, to pursue that. But I think, you know, it's a combination of, Huguenot influence, Dutch influence, and West Country English influence that makes that kind of new late 17th century Cork uh, the very distinctive place it was.
0: Brilliant. Dan. Thanks, David. That's This is the final question now, and then I'll wrap it up then. Uh, did Cork theatres enjoy visits from internationally renowned actors in the way theatres in Dublin did? And what was the level of interest in the theatre in Cork?
1: Thanks. I'm glad to take that as a last one because I, I, I think... You know, looking at what goes on in the theatre can tell you an awful lot about why people came and spent their money in these places. Uh, Now, Cork's theatre was later to develop, uh, but in the new theatre of the 1770s, it was certainly—I think I'm going in memory here—able to hold uh, certainly well over a thousand uh, people. Now, the first part of the question is: you know, do you get uh, players who Kind of know the, the London stage uh, reaching Cork? And the absolute answer is yes. I mean, those that come to Dublin uh, for the winter season would tend, uh, if possible, to go on a kind of repertory circuit uh, to the Munster Towns and spend longest in the, the late summer, early autumn, generally speaking, when uh, Cork Theatre uh, was at its best before the slaughtering season. Dublin Theatre has been very closely uh, written up in the the literature Cork Theatre, less so. But I think that the simple answer to the question is yes, indeed, uh, you've got a taste of London and a very large taste of Dublin uh, on the stage of Cork, uh, but Cork people had their own preferences too. And perhaps one of the most, m- most famous sort of memoir writers on Irish theatre in this era, uh, John O'Keefe, has certainly got uh, some Cork origins.
0: Fantastic! Thanks so much, David. They're uh, brilliant question, questions and answers. Thanks to everybody. OK, so I'll, I'll wrap up then now. So I'd like to thank um, our speaker, David Dixon. Thanks so much for a brilliant talk. It was really f- fascinating. And thank you so much for that. And also to everyone who took part in today's History Festival event run by Dublin City Council. I would also like to thank my co-host, Howard Stack, for jumping in there and saving me when my internet drops. So thanks very much, Howard, for that. And also to Zoe in the Festival of History team for her tech support and you can find out more about upcoming festival events at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and through our social media channels so i hope you should enjoy today's event so thank you everybody and goodbye Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter, where we're at, at histfest.